Section 3 of the Empresses of Constantinople. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Rita Boutros. The Empresses of Constantinople by Joseph McCabe. Chapter 2 The Early Life of Theodora. The next empress to occupy the superb apartments in the palace, with their couches of ivory and silver, and their regiments of fawning eunuchs and silk-clad ladies, was assuredly one of the most remarkable figures that ever sat on a throne. The empress Euphemia hardly ever issues into the pages of history, from the becoming seclusion of the women's quarters in the palace, but the few details which we have concerning her suggest the most incongruous figure that imagination could place in such a world, and a brief account of her romantic elevation is a necessary introduction to the equally remarkable and better-known story of the famous Empress Theodora. The Roman Empire seemed to be deterred by some faint recollection of its early democratic spirit from admitting the hereditary principle, but the absence of this arrangement for securing the succession, together with the complete lack of any really democratic arrangement, often threw it into a chaotic confusion when a ruler died and made its internal history a thrilling succession of romances and tragedies, with an occasional page of comedy. In this case, it is comedy. Anastasius, after playing his successive parts as peasant, lay preacher, soldier, and ruler of the world, had passed away, amid the derision and rejoicing of his people, in the year 518. His nephews had feeble pretensions to succeed him, but the most powerful man in the city, the prefect Amantius, decided that the purple should pass to his friend Theocritus. He therefore sought the commander, or count, of the excubitors, the more formidable guards of the palace, and placed in his hands a large sum of money for distribution among the troops. Justin, the said commander, was an Illyrian peasant who had won promotion in the wars. He was in his later sixties, though still a powerful man, with handsome rosy face and curly white hair. But under this disarming exterior he concealed an ambition and astuteness which the prefect failed to suspect. He distributed the money in his own interest, and passed unopposed from the modest quarters of the guard to the more luxurious chambers of the palace. Euphemia was the wife of Justin, and it may safely be said that no woman ever experienced a more romantic elevation. In his military days Justin had bought a barbaric slave named Lupicina, and raised her to the rank of his concubine though no doubt he married her in the course of time. She retained the uncouth and illiterate manners of her class, and Constantinople must have smiled to see her in the richly embroidered robes of purple silk, with cascades of diamonds and pearls falling from her gorgeous diadem. The acclamation of the crowd changed her name to Euphemia, and she retired to the congenial privacy of her palace. Justin brought his equally illiterate mother, Biglaniza, to the palace from her rustic home, 
and the two women no doubt contracted a fitting friendship in their wonderful new home of public action on their part there is no question and the events of the next few years do not concern us i will say only that after securing his throne by cutting off the head of amantius and crushing theocritus under heavy stones in his dungeon for venturing to resent the trick he had played them justin ruled with moderation if not prudence for nine years euphemia died three or four years before him living just long enough to see and emphatically resent her successor the notorious theodora in approaching the story of theodora it is necessary to premise a few words on the authority which has provided most of the sensational statements about her and to pay respectful attention to the efforts of some recent historical writers to discredit those statements the general outline of her story has been made familiar by gibbon who has genially dilated on the elevation of one of the lewdest actresses and most notorious prostitutes of constantinople to the position not merely of mistress of the greatest empire of the time but also of patroness of an important branch of the church and the daily companion of saintly monks and bishops since theodora is very commonly described by the chroniclers as at least equal in power to her husband the great justinian and since the next most powerful woman in the byzantine empire at the time is assigned a similar origin to that of theodora the world has long reflected with amazement on this spectacle of the roman empire at the feet of two imperfectly converted prostitutes such a situation could not pass unchallenged before the more critical tribunal of modern history and there are scholars who have rejected entirely the romantic story of the youth of theodora the majority of historians including the two chief living authorities professor berry and m deal regard the story as true in substance though unreliable in detail the more romantic statements concerning theodora are taken from a work that purports to have been written by the greatest contemporary historical writer procopius but there are writers such as ranke and berry who regard the work as at the most a later compilation of notes left by procopius and in any case it is so envenomed in temper and occasionally so reckless in statement that it should be regarded with suspicion the problem cannot be discussed at length here but it is necessary to justify the large use i am about to make of the work the anecdotes which bears the name of procopius if it were true as is sometimes said that we had no authority for the impeachment of the character of theodora beyond the anecdotes we should have to hesitate very seriously but this is by no means true procopius on the persian war represents her as playing a most unscrupulous part in the ruin of john of cappadocia liberatus a contemporary cleric and anastasius exhibit the empress to us corrupting the papacy itself and deposing a venerable pontiff by the most cruel and flagrantly dishonest charges zonaris and other writers accuse her not merely of avarice as mr mallet says 
but of the most heartless and unblushing corruption in feeding her avarice there is every reason to regard theodora after her elevation to the throne as a woman devoid of moral scruple but we now have ample confirmation also of the story of her origin the statement of an eleventh-century writer amoinus that justinian took his wife from a brothel shows in spite of its wild inaccuracies that some such tradition was found in european literature quite apart from the anecdotes but the publication in the nineteenth century of the writings of john bishop of ephesus has furnished a decisive proof this monophysite bishop and cultivated writer who lived for years beside the palace of theodora and whose sect received the most imperial and incalculable benefits from her speaks of her as theodora of the brothel and he uses the phrase in such a way as to intimate plainly that this was the name by which she was known in constantinople before her elevation to the throne indeed the fact that the author of the anecdotes does not assail the chastity of theodora after her marriage increases our confidence in his account of her earlier life as he did not intend to publish his work it was not published until sixteen twenty three it would have been just as easy to invent or collect legends about her after as before her marriage on the other hand the temper of the writer is so bitter and malignant that we must reserve our judgment in regard to the details of his strange narrative he has gathered together every defaming rumour about theodora and justinian that circulated in constantinople even admitting nonsense obviously unworthy of a serious writer and we cannot sift the true from the legendary the source of his animosity cannot be determined. From the tone of his remarks on religion, I gather that he was one of the many surviving pagans who were forced into outward conformity with the new religion, and, after giving formal praise in his historical works to Justinian and Theodora for the splendor of their reign, he relieved his soul in this secret collection of notes of the deep disgust he felt at the contrast between their characters and their professions and between the glamour and the misery of their empire it must be remembered that the thoroughly christian and very weighty authority evagrius is just as severe on justinian there was in justinian he says something surpassing the cruelty of beasts and any prostitute could despoil a wealthy man by a false charge say of unnatural vice a trick of theodora's provided she let justinian share her vile gain it is the common teaching of the authorities that the empress was worse than the emperor in point of fact there is nothing implausible or improbable in the details of procopius's story of theodora's early life and the judicious reader will merely make allowance for the rhetorical strength of its superlatives her father acacius had been a keeper of the bears which were baited in the hippodrome in the reign of anastasius the hippodrome at constantinople united the functions which at rome had been divided between the circus the theatre and the amphitheatre 
Its chief attraction was the chariot racing, which provided the central and most thrilling sensation of Roman life. Between the races, however, there were contests with wild beasts in the arena, and there were the numerous nondescript performances which occupied the theatre at Rome. Mimes, actors by gesture, clowns, acrobats, conjurers, etc., Acacius was bear-keeper to the greens, and when he died, his widow promptly secured another partner and claimed the office for him. But the superintendent Asterius had sold the office to another man, and the shrewd widow appealed to the sympathy of the crowd by parading in the hippodrome the heads and hands of her three daughters crowned with the emblems of virginity. The Greens jeered, possibly at the sight of the eldest daughter, Comatona, a loose girl of seventeen, dressed as a vestal virgin. But the Blues received them with sympathy, a distinction which the pale and slender little Theodora would never forget. The mother, who is said to have come from Cyprus, either before or after the birth of Theodora, then pressed the fortunes of her daughters in the theatrical world. Comatona was already a mime, or actress without words, and, as was usual, a prostitute. The young Theodora presently began to attend her elder sister, and is said to have begun her career of infamy as she waited among the slaves and lackeys on the fringe of the hippodrome. When she in turn became an actress, her pretty pale face, lithe figure, and unrestrained gaiety and dissoluteness made her a great favorite. She stripped to the narrowest limit of decency, which the very liberal law permitted, performed the most nearly obscene ribaldries which the Roman theatre allowed, and was preeminent for the abandonment of her gestures and movements, and in the hours of the night, when the wealthier patrons of the Hippodrome entertained themselves in perfumed chambers with the actresses and courtesans, Theodora was in the greatest favor." It is absurd to say that this is to impute to Theodora a moral turpitude unparalleled in any age. It was the common turpitude of that age, of our age, and of every intervening age. The theatre, indeed, no longer admits the very broad license which was admitted at Constantinople, but the performances which are ascribed by Procopius to Theodora are innocent in comparison with certain performances which may be witnessed in semi-publicity in very many cities of Europe to-day. Of Theodora's private behavior, that she practiced both forms of unnatural as well as natural vice, one need only say that it is, and always has been, common to her class. An actress at that time meant a woman of loose conduct. The imperial decrees and the church fully recognize this, and it is significant that one of the theatres, if not the one theatre, of Constantinople was called the Harlots, and is so named in an imperial document. Procopius is merely imputing to Theodora the common practices of loose women of her time and our own and when in later pages we come to realize the fiery and unrestrained temper of the beautiful greek we can well believe that she was at that time one of the worst of her class not less plausible is the next chapter in the life of theodora 
a wealthy official hecebolus induced her to accompany him to the african province which he was to administer and her very brief career at constantinople came to a close m deal conjectures that this occurred in five seventeen in her eighteenth year and that she remained a few years with hecebolus however that may be she was about the year five twenty one ejected from the governor's house and she passed to alexandria and thence to antioch and the other cities of syria and asia minor it is most probable that this was the time when either at alexandria or antioch she became a convert to the monophysite faith the question of the true character of christ had racked and rent the eastern world amid all its ribaldry and vice for two hundred years and the burning issue at this time was whether the nature of christ should be described as single or twofold the monophysites held that there was but one nature in Christ, and were bitterly opposed to the synodists, or supporters of the orthodox council of Chalcedon. It may seem incongruous to drag in so solemn an issue on so defiled a page of biography, but it is essential for the understanding of Theodora's career. According to Procopius, Theodora still practiced her evil profession in the cities of Asia, for the next few years, however, there is much obscurity about her movements, and the biographer cannot proceed with great confidence. One eleventh-century writer represents that Justinian and the commander Belisarius chose their wives in a loose house in Constantinople. Another equally remote and unreliable chronicler says that Justinian found Theodora living a modest life supporting herself by spinning wool in a small house under the portico a very strange residence for a virtuous woman i prefer still to follow the very plausible story in substance of the anecdotes at antioch theodora went in great distress to visit macedonia an actress who had influence with justinian it is hardly strained to conjecture that this was the real occasion of her introduction to Justinian, that she went on to Constantinople with a recommendation to him, and was at once taken into his house. Beyond question she was his mistress for some years before he married her. Justin had brought from Upper Macedonia, and educated in the schools of Constantinople, the favorite nephew who was to become the Emperor Justinian. At the time when Theodora came back to Constantinople, about the year 522, he approached his fortieth year, a handsome, wealthy, and free-living bachelor, of fresh and florid complexion, and the curly hair of a Greek. His reputation was somewhat sinister, his influence unbounded. In entertaining the populace on his elevation to the consulship in the previous year, he had spent about a hundred and sixty thousand pounds, and had turned twenty lions and thirty leopards together into the arena. He was plainly marked for the throne. The pretty pale face and bright eyes and graceful figure of Theodora captivated him, and her experienced art enabled her to profit by the infatuation. Justinian lived in the palace of Hormidas, on the shore of the Sea of Marmara, and Constantinople would take little scandal at his connection with Theodora. 
four or five years absence would have enfeebled the memory of her earlier career and the zeal for the true religion the monophysite heresy which she paraded from the moment of her connection with justinian would ensure the genial indulgence of the frivolous population justinian had her made a patrician or noble lodged her in his beautiful palace and showered his favours upon her it is at this point that bishop john begins to describe his co-religionists appealing to the protection of theodora of the brothel from all parts of the empire there were two obstacles to marriage justin was feeble and senile and little able or disposed to resist his nephew's whims but Euphemia strongly opposed the marriage until her death in 523 or 524. The more serious impediment was the standing law of the Roman Empire that a noble could not wed a woman of ill fame, an actress, tavern girl, or courtesan. Justinian afterwards removed this restriction, but it must have been in some way overruled by Justin, and many authorities believe that the first law in the Justinian Code on the point was really promulgated by Justin. A daughter seems to have been born before the marriage, possibly before the connection with Justinian, as John of Ephesus confirms the statement of Procopius that Theodora had a marriageable grandson before she died in 548. The next step for the enterprising young Greek was the attainment of the throne. Justin was pressed, as he aged, to associate his nephew in the government, and although he nervously refused for some time, he at length, April 527, conferred the supreme dignity of Augustus on his nephew and of Augusta on Theodora. She now entered upon the full splendor of imperial life, and no parvenu ever bore it with more exaggerated dignity than the ex-actress, as we shall see. There must have been many who smiled when Theodora first witnessed the old sights of the Hippodrome from the imperial chapel of St. Stephen, or sat for the homage of the senators in the long gold-embroidered mantle with the screen of heavy jewels falling in chains from her diadem upon her neck and breast as we find her depicted in a mosaic at ravenna but her formidable power and her unscrupulous use of it would soon extinguish the last echo of her opprobrious nickname the early years of theodora's power were spent in enlarging the prestige of her position and in recompensing her friends the existent palaces could not meet the requirements of the woman who, a few years before, had begged money of an Antioch courtesan. Justin had to annex his palace of Hormidas to the imperial domain and build fresh palaces. The favorite residence of Theodora was the cool and superb palace of Hiera across the water and in spite of the lack of accommodation for her enormous suite and the terrors of a whale popularly named porfirio which infested the waters of constantinople at the time she frequently crossed to it at home in the sacred palace she led a life strangely opposed to that of the temperate accessible and hard-working justinian 
rising at an early hour she devoted a considerable time to the bath and toilet by which she trusted to sustain her charm in spite of delicate health after breaking her fast she again retired to rest before she would consent to receive courtiers and suitors in view of her paramount influence with the emperor many sought her patronage or dreaded to incur her terrible resentment by seeming indifferent to it numbers of nobles waited sometimes for days in the hot anteroom to her apartments standing on tiptoe to catch the eye of the pampered eunuchs who passed to and fro after a long delay they might be admitted to kiss the golden sandals of theodora and listen to her august wishes no man was permitted to speak except in reply to a question in the course of time as we shall see the highest nobles eagerly submitted to this humiliating treatment in order to preserve their wealth from the extortioner dinner and supper at which though theodora ate little the most opulent banquets had to be served occupied the further hours of the day together with theodora's abundant devotions and converse with holy men her friends were generously admitted to share her advantages the anecdotes tell a story of an illegitimate son of hers who discovered his birth came to the empress for recognition or money and was at once dispatched to another world that seems to be one of the calumnious fables which the writer too eagerly admitted into his indictment the anecdotes themselves rather show that theodora did not make every effort to conceal the past however strongly she might resent discussion of it her sister, Comatona, was certainly married in the first year of her reign to a wealthy and powerful noble. It is not so certain, but probable enough, that she cherished her earlier theatrical friends, Chrysomalo and Indara, and found wealthy husbands for their daughters. The woman whose name we shall find most closely connected with hers, Antonina, the wife of the great general Belisarius, is said to have been her tirewoman before she married Belisarius. This would account for Theodora's coolness until Antonina won her by securing her revenge on John of Cappadocia, when Theodora is said not merely to have overlooked, but promoted the vices of her friend there is at least no room for doubt about the character of Antonina. But while Theodora admitted these mute reminders of her earlier life, she turned with extraordinary severity upon her earlier colleagues as a body, and undertook the purification of the city. The decrees of Justinian for regulating the morals of Constantinople, decrees which go so far as to define the penalties for people who made assignations in churches, and on the strength of which bishops were castrated and exhibited in public for unnatural vice, are generally ascribed to her influence. She had the imperial net dragged through the loose houses of Constantinople, and five hundred of the occupants were imprisoned in an ancient palace on the Asiatic shore, a form of enforced piety which, the carping Procopius says, drove many of them to suicide. Many writers think this zeal for purity inconsistent with the story of her earlier life. It has rather the appearance of a feverish affectation of repentance, 
and must be balanced by the many proofs we have of Theodora's really corrupt and unscrupulous character. One may recall that Domitian drastically punished the vices of others. Procopius would have us believe that Theodora compelled unmarried women to marry, and that when two delicate widows fled to the church to escape her pressure, she had them dragged from the altar and married to men of infamous life. Yet, he says, vice was rampant in Constantinople and protected by the empress, when money was paid into her greedy coffers. Such details we cannot control, and must reproduce with reserve. We know only from other sources that she extorted money by corrupt means. And the most singular and piquant feature of Theodora's life at this period was her zealous patronage of the Monophysites. Long before her coronation, from the time when she became the mistress of Justinian, the joyous news of her elevation flew throughout the empire among the persecuted heretics. They had had their hours of triumph under Basiliscus and Anastasius, but with the accession of Justin the Orthodox had returned to power, and the twofold nature of the gentle Christ had been urged with bloody arguments. From the monasteries and towns of the provinces, pilgrims now began to arrive at the Hormistas Palace in great numbers, and through Justinian she obtained relief and money for them. When she entered the imperial palace, the procession increased, and while the nobles of Constantinople were detained for hours before being permitted to kiss her feet, ragged monks and unlettered deacons strode into the imperial apartments without a moment's delay so zealous indeed was theodora for their edifying conversation that she kept them as long as possible about her saint simeon of persia came to plead the cause of his persecuted brethren and was induced to live for a year in the luxurious palace Arsenius of Palestine, one of the chief firebrands of his province, was cherished by her, though Procopius affirms that he at length lost her favor and was crucified. Orthodox monks were even permitted with impunity to rebuke the terrible empress. A holy hermit came one day to chide Theodora for her heresy. Ragged and dirty, with garments so patched that hardly three inches of cloth of one color appeared in it, he admonished her in fiery language. Theodora was so charmed with his piety that she sought to add him to her domestic collection of sanctities. When persuasion failed, she resorted to corruption. We read the story not in the anecdotes, but in John. She had a large sum of gold concealed in linen and imposed on him. But the fiery monk hurled it across the palace, crying, Thy money perish with thee. St. Sabas, also the unlettered and unadorned abbot of an orthodox monastery at Jerusalem, came to ask her patronage. His piety excused his heresy in her eyes, and she kept him for days at the palace, and humbly asked his prayers that she might have a son. The grim monk refused, and when companions asked how he could scorn the request of so generous a patroness, he replied, We do not want any fruit from that womb, lest it be suckled on the heretical doctrines of Severus. 
so great at length became the number of pious pilgrims from the provinces and so eager was theodora to retain them near her person that the hormistas palace which justinian had richly decorated for her and enclosed within the area of the imperial palace was converted into a monastery then were witnessed the quaintest scenes that ever enlivened the passion-throbbing palace of the eastern emperors five hundred monks of all ages and nationalities of every degree of sanctity and raggedness were crowded in or about its marbled walls every form that monastic fervor had assumed in the fiery provinces of syria or egypt was exemplified in it the orderly community sang its endless psalms and macerated its flesh in the rooms where justinian had dallied with his mistress little huts were scattered about the grounds for those who were called to the life of the hermit and even columns were set up here and there for those who would imitate the more novel and arduous piety of st simeon stylides and pass at the open summit of the column a kind of existence which the polite pen must refrain from describing all the beggars of constantinople gathered for the crumbs of this remarkable colony and crowds of citizens pressed to witness this singular oasis of virtue in the most corrupt city of the world theodora rarely let a day pass without crossing the gardens to receive the blessing and enjoy the pious conversation of such of the saints as would deign to converse with a woman how she went on to put a courtly heretic upon the archiepiscopal throne of constantinople and by an extraordinary piece of intrigue and corruption depose a pope and replace him by one who pretended to favor her designs we shall see presently we must now set forth the imperial career of theodora in chronological order and learn what kind of character this remarkable woman maintained amid the chants and prayers of her deeply venerated monks. End of section three.